Ladies and gentlemen, I'm full of optimism. Einstein's theory of relativity. We're still seeing it quite well through that haze. He minus 37 seconds. The fight is going to equals MC. That all men are created equal. About the future innovation. And growing strength in the air. This is Finding Your Frequency with your hosts, Jeff Spinard and Ryan Treasure. It's time to speak up, share your voice, and hear from the thought leaders. Well, good day, everyone. My name is Randall Libero, and you're here listening to the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We have a very special guest today. A woman who actually calls herself a bit of a time traveler. So that should pique your interest. But let me, um, let's start here, uh, just as a, a way to introduce our guest today. Imagine a world where a handful of businesses and governments could foresee the future. In the beginning, they could see to the end of the block, a little later the end of the street, then all at once around the corner down the highway, across the ocean, and beyond the curvature of the earth. Now, imagine for a moment their prognostications were right. Not right once or twice, right every single time. Imagine anticipating future events with such precision that a threat could be quashed before it had the opportunity to materialize. Shortages and surpluses could be managed in advance, public opinion shaped beforehand. Well, imagine no more. That's the world we live in today. And our guest today is Cindy Kuhn. And Cindy calls herself a time traveler, producer, writer, and a rule bender for good. But she does much more. So first of all, Cindy, thanks and welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So there's a lot of places where we could start this conversation, but as we were just discussing before, um, your background is in fine arts. Correct. But today you find yourself doing what? So while my training is in creativity and fine arts, I actually work in the threat space and big, wicked challenges. (laughs) So those challenges are very far-ranging. Um, there's a number of th- areas that you work in, and uh, as you talk about uh, threats and threat intelligence, and and one of those is, I would say, is the word if I get this right, threat casting. Correct. Okay. Tell us what that, uh, what you, how you define that. Absolutely. So threat casting is. Um, it was created by Brian David Johnson, who is a futurist. And to be a futurist, that's actually a trained profession. And you have a training in foresight, which allows you to use science and data to collect information in order to look into the future. No prediction happening. It's, mm-hmm. it's not that kind of science, but it was designed and developed inside the technology space. Right. And then there was a moment where there was a real discovery that it, this 
effects-based model that we use in threat casting could really benefit all of our fellow humans. And so at the Threat Casting Lab, we work with government, military, industry-related, higher ed, um, media, and other social relationships that lead back to the human experience. And we have, it's a sponsored So we have individuals who sponsor specific research for us to take a look at threats that are very real in the body of knowledge, but not yet real in the atmosphere, in the experience of the human beings that we are trying to protect. What that really means is we look 10 years into the future. All of our work, it's not tomorrow because we've got a lot to do. It's not in five years, because that's a little bit too soon, and it doesn't let the imagination wander enough. We don't look at 15 years, because suddenly we're into flying cars. Because beyond 10 years, humans see everything in Jetsons form. So the 10-year mark seems to be a perfect location for the imagination to consider these threats and what can be done about them it's far enough but not too far that's right (laughs) yeah so uh you're also the author of a book it's called thrive the creative's guidebook to professional tenacity it was published uh, fairly recently Mm -hmm. um and you're also a producer in um, the event space and the uh, experience space and i just want to Tell everyone that you can find out a lot more about Cindy by going to laboratory5.com. That's a website where there's a, you can look at what they do in the laboratory. You can uh, look at uh, what and explore experience and uh, look at all sorts of different things that Cindy is involved in. Um, when you were talking about the threat area, in people's minds, they have a, perceive, a perception as far as what would be threatening to them. So we're talking about things like cyber threats, um, threats to maybe uh, local uh, things like the electrical grid, I mean, Mm -hmm. all sorts of things. What are some of the things that you've worked on that you can talk to us about? Sure. (laughs) Because uh, we're getting into the area of security clearance, folks. Um, (laughs) and, uh, And just kind of describe so people have an idea when you talk about these different areas of threats, what what actually types of industries and businesses are you talking about? Yeah, let me highlight something really important at the top surrounding that, which is it's not just a specific and unique threat. It's really the intersection of opportunity. So when we look at a threat for a sponsor, they may come to us. I'll give you an example of one we're wrapping right now that we began um, a year ago. And that's in the disinformation space. So we had a request to run a threat casting workshop, which, just to explain that really quick, that's where we gather the premier subject matter experts on whatever topic it is. The people that everyone agrees they know the most and they're the source. So we tap those folks first and gather their input. And then we curate workshops of the next tier of folks who 
while they may not be the premier experts, they're still considered experts in their field, and they're the folks working on the body of knowledge within this field. When we receive the kind of threat set, here's the problem, take a look at it, we then intersect it because no human has a threat that is a one-liner. So if we're talking about something like the grid and the grid may be a threat, well, it's very complex. It's not just you came home and your lights were off. And so you have to look at the grid and what? Finance, the grid and water, the grid and healthcare. And so that's what we're really doing in our in our threat work is we're the ones bringing together the intersection points. Um, and so in the disinformation space, we brought together, we've run two workshops, actually sort of two and a half. Um, we do something called a big tent workshop, which is where members from the public, it's unclassified, everything that comes out of it is available to the public, in fact, on threatcasting.com. You can see all of our public reports. And what we're looking for is 10 years in the future, how will our citizens be affected by disinformation? And so what I can tell you is the immediate outcome of that is a collapse of disinformation, misinformation, and malinformation into one identified complex space, um, which is now being called information disorder. Because it's not just that you receive the disinformation, or the misinformation, it's that within the space you're in, the complexities of how you receive it and how you share it matter. And that's what I mean about intersection. It's not just, oh, we know people are suffering from misinformation they're receiving. It's how are they receiving it and what are they going to do with it? So information disorder also has to do with technology and social media. And the outcome of that, where we're at right now, 10 years from now, is a pretty clear understanding by all parties involved that this is going to occur with machines. So we're looking at information disorder machines. Why does that matter? It matters because the lens that Everything I do, no matter threat or anything else, the lens that I use is of the humans. And if we have empathy for humans, all human experience, everyone's experience is unique, which is why you opened with I'm in the experience space. What that really means is I care about what does every single human engaged in whatever effort we're doing what is their experience? What does it look like? What is their personal background? What does their future hold? And in the disinformation space, everybody's already holding an information disorder machine in their hands. You already have one. You already own it. Mm -hmm. It's your phone. It's your iPad. It's your laptop. It's whatever's next. It's your watch. Who's going to control that space? And how challenging would it be for a adversary to get a hold of your machine and start to create customized pushes to you. So we look at this a lot with Generation Z. So 
if you're under 23 right now, you ha you're a digital nomad. You've never existed in the world without the internet. This is your whole life. You came into this. And so you're going to look at your engagements online so much different than a boomer, a Gen Xer, a millennial, or the greatest gen. I mean, we have all of those folks living in one space at one mm -hmm. time right now. Right. We have to be empathetic towards the humans and look at threats uniquely for each of those sets of the population. So that's what we're really looking at is it's intersection. It's it's the generations, it's their experiences. And then when we run these workshops, we ask our participants to go dark, which is really hard, actually. It's a two-day workshop because on day one, we do a report out, and at the end of the day, each team has to have somebody stand up and say, all right, we took your threat set that the sponsor said was really important, and we came up with this. And then as they go around the room, they start to go, oh, we're all really similar and we didn't go that dark. And wait a minute, aren't some of these threats kind of already happening right now? And they realize they didn't go out far enough and they didn't go out dark enough. So then we run it again the next day and they get a little better. And then that second afternoon, the results we get where the humans start to see, while it's challenging to imagine adversaries doing such hard things to our own citizens or globally, to humans anywhere. Mm -hmm. When you're in a room where you have a permission space to use your creativity and your wild imagination, only then do we begin to help with whatever the threat problem is. Because having only data scientists, which I cannot stress enough, is super important, but it's an earlier step. Then we have to get wild and imaginative with it. And one thing I like to say, just as a just a sort of marker, something that every, you know, every citizen across the world experienced, which was America's 9-11. So 9-11 happened. It shocked so many. Mm -hmm. Didn't shock everybody, but it shocked most. Yeah. So that report is available online. Anybody can go read it. It's hundreds of pages. But if you go get it, go to the end. Read the last paragraph. The last paragraph is the determination of what really happened on 9-11. Where did we go wrong? And the final outcome is lack of imagination. So if we can create a permission space for imagination to look at threats well in advance, what we do is we figure out ways through the data. It's all data. Math doesn't lie. We're not inventing or, you know coming up with wild, it's real. It's here's the data, here's mm -hmm. what it says, here's right. the possibilities. So what we're then bringing back is how do you disrupt, mitigate, and recover? And we provide flags and gates. So we're looking at, well, this could happen in two years, four years, eight years. If you see it, here's what to do. So that we never get to the 10-year mark. So that we're making sure these threats do not occur and most citizens never even knew they were a probability. So that's the threat space I'm working in. No, thank you for that more complete explanation and yeah. actually the way that you wrapped up there was helpful for people to put in their minds the context of why it's important to them at the individual level. Yeah. Because the threats that are happening today can affect the population, can affect individuals and you know, however they're going to 
um, you know, be happening. Mm -hmm. um, when we were <clears throat> we were just talking before, um, and I want to jump off from that point from where we started off talking about imagination about data. So there's data and there's people. So to break it down for mm -hmm. people, all right. So what we're going to talk about from this point forward in this conversation is one of the things that you said in our chat just before we came on, came into the studio here is is we don't know what to do with what we have, mm -hmm. the data that we have, and interpreting data and how does this affect people. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, and you know I smile as soon as you bring that up because the main. The main concern right now at this moment in time is a lot of our citizen base believes things are taken care of. Somebody's handling stuff and aren't all the protections in place. And well, everybody collects all our data, so don't they have the data? Can't they do something with it? The important thing to really understand is data is massive right now. There is so much. We are not searching for how to, to collect data. There's a lot of it and there are a lot of tools. And a lot of the humans really believe, well, don't we have machines that are crunching that and telling us what to do? So that's a reference to AI and machine learning, which we've always had AI. AI is not a new field. What's new is what we're doing with it. So having folks understand data's always been collected. You know, you started that. It's, it's census. It's grocery store, um, you know, cards. It's everything you engage with. But where can it go wrong and where can it go right? And so one thing that needs a lot of work and a lot of help and a lot of support right now is what do we do with all this data? And how do the right people get their hands on it? So the biggest chunk of data sets are owned by US corporations, like Google. Well, they don't share it. So we can't just knock on Google's door and say, hey, you've got everything about everybody. Can we have it so we can make their lives better? That doesn't work that way. <laughs> We're not that kind of place. So it's really important to understand while it all exists, what we're missing still right now for every complex, wicked problem you can name is the intersection. How do we gather all of that data and how do we use it for good to improve the lives of people who need that? We don't have that. That does not exist. And if it did, a lot of the things we're suffering from could be solved a lot quicker, or at least maybe not solved, but solutions that would make humans' lives better. What we're missing is how do we bring all that data together? And then once we do, how do we know what to do with it? And here's why we don't really know what to do with it right now. It's because in our government, in our industries, even in academia, all the important places where the good research and work is happening, we have a lot of data scientists and we have a lot of efforts towards 
collecting, redistributing. We don't have enough humans who step up inside these spaces and say, well, this is all good information, but how does this affect someone's life? How does Betty Sue Ann in Iowa, how does she benefit from this or how does she suffer from this? And that's what I do. I'm, I am the bulldog. I go to D.C. and I, I'm shaking in meetings and right. in events. And I stand up and I say, enough with the tech. Enough with those kind of solutions. Look around. It's not working. Or if it is working, it's slow. Or it's not impactful. It's not big enough. My phrase is always, when you're looking at data and you're trying to figure out, well, what do we do with all of this? You have to start with the problems are created by the humans. The solutions will be created by the humans. There is no machine that's going to fix all this for us. There's no algorithm, computer software that we can put all of our whole personhood into and have it ticker tape out the other side and give us the answer. That's the Jetsons. And I hope we're never there, actually. I mean, I believe in data. Science and technology are vital. But if it all went away tomorrow, all of it, it's gone. And we're back to scorched earth, and there's a few of us left. Yeah. Or you shut the power off. You shut the power off. It's like Dave, there is stood still. Shut the power off, and what happens? Everybody mm-hmm. stops and slows down. Right. It's like when the, when the, uh, when the lights went off in New York and mm-hmm. had the power outage. What did people do? They actually got together and talked to each other. That's right. That Shared nice? the food they had. Yeah. And, and so my role in all of this as a creative and as an imaginative human is – to make sure the humans are considered in every threat and every effort. And that matters even in things to do with nature. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's kind of, it's platform and content agnostic. I don't care what the threats are. It's, they still matter for the humans, yeah. which is why you can sort of, you can run um, threat casting exercises on any topic. You really can, because if there are humans on the other side that are going to be affected by a threat, doesn't matter what it is, let's figure it out and let's find solutions. Let's create actual do-outs that tell the folks who can do something about it what they can do. Let's talk about someone who has an individual business of some kind, could be in whatever industry. what are some of the things they should be thinking about right now that you think they're completely missing? Who works for them? Who are their partners? Who are their customers? Knowing the human-to-human engagement will change your lens. So whether you are a small business or a Fortune 100, having humans on team who know everyone you're working with, not just for dark reasons to know, oh, is there a bad apple who's going to mess with our, you know, cybersecurity, who's going to steal something. That's, that's small. It's not just that. It's also knowing who in your network, what, regardless of your industry, is thinking in unique ways, 
is working on things that challenge all of the work that you do. It's the difference is the successful outcomes really come from relationships. And having those relationships, if you work more in a cyber field where you really have to focus on daily adversaries and, you know, ransomware and hackers and all of that kind of stuff, you better have a real quality community around your your network relationships should be your top priority so that you can see it coming. And if you are just operating without those, it's going to be really hard for you to stay ahead of the game. And you can operate from day to day, and then if something happens and you get taken over and suddenly ransom is requested, you can deal with it and you can invite in the authorities. But we're really looking not at supporting the victim thereafter, that's kind of different units than us. That's not where I'm at, and that's not where any of the labs that I work with are at. We're really looking way in advance so that it just never happens. But if you have a company and you're trying to figure that out on your own, you better bring someone in who knows how to figure it out. Because you can start with relationships, and it's more than just glad-handing. It's really knowing what's out there, who's your community, and how do you build that. It's it's number one, the humans. That's the answer. Yeah, and on that note, we were discussing previously um, the idea and the difference between safety and security. Mm. And you made uh, something that we don't – often think about, and we hear these words a lot, especially coming out of uh, our, our media companies in Washington and all those other places, but we, uh, you you had a really smart take on it and, and just expound on what we, yeah. what we were talking about before Absolutely. a little bit. Well, I think, you know, all the big organizations, which would be, you know, government, military, industry, the companies you can name and think of, higher education, um, they think about security a lot as you can imagine, and all facets of security. It's a constant conversation. It's a constant consideration. Citizens, the humans, they don't think about security. Security, when you, if you were to stop and ask 100 people on the street, when I say security, what do you think of? They will say, you mean like my home security so no one breaks in? Do you mean my bank account and how to keep that safe? Do you mean my passwords and how to keep those safe? That's all they ever consider with security. And maybe somebody who's had a personal experience might add something else that they encountered. Safety is what humans think about. Safety is everything from tie your shoe so you don't fall down while you're walking to keeping my home protected. They only think of security for their home protection when they're paying the bill. But when they're thinking about it with their family, they're thinking, I'm keeping my family safe. Why does this distinction matter? It matters because the next generation, which will be the largest generation in U.S. history, which right now is kind of going by Gen Z or iGen or the founders, that generation, 
all of the data that has come out, and I'm one of those people who always say, math doesn't lie, the data, the data is the data. What we know about this generation is their number one top priority above and beyond any other thing is safety. Why does that matter? Why is that important? It's important for the rest, the rest of us because we need to, one, be respectful, that that's their top priority. That means we need to be empathetic to their experience. And it means the rest of us need to understand where does that come from? Why would there be an entire generation that collectively believes safety is the most important thing? All we have to do is look at our own behavior. We have to look at Gen Xers who were abandoned latchkey kids, who then had millennials who thought, I'm not going to do that to my kid. I'm going to protect him. And then the millennials are raising Gen Zs with, with the fear inside their own bodies that their previous generations put into them. So epigenetics becomes very important for us to look at around safety, to really look at what are these humans owning themselves and what did we put there from previous family. It's also really important because it means that this generation cares very deeply. They don't have such dispersed cross-sections of interest. They care very deeply because they're concerned about their planet, the notion of climate change, they don't know what to do about it. They don't know what it means. They don't understand how to read the data. None, nothing, yeah. because we're not yeah. educating yeah. our population. That scares them. They feel concerned that the whole earth is going to burn up in their lifetime. It doesn't matter data left, right, in between. What matters is this feeling is real for them. And we need to look at that. And you cannot go to a 20-year-old right now and say, let's talk about your security. But why do we need to talk about their security? Because they're only thinking about safety in the super 50,000 feet blue skyway and their personal safety. The in-between is currently just sort of a lost space. So what's an example of that? Well, in this generation's lifetime, they are likely to a good percentage of them live in a space where self-driving cars is their reality. Okay, so what do we know about self-driving cars? What do we talk about right now? What we talk about as a society is, could self-driving cars be dangerous because they could hit someone on the street? That's what we talk about. We talk about the accidents that have occurred during the beta testing. What we never talk about is, what's going on with the security inside this car? That's completely a moving computer. What could the adversary do to an entire population who in full cities are moving around in self-driven vehicles where they're sitting in the back seat barely paying attention? What could that look like in the future? What are the threats associated with the security around something like that? We don't talk about those things. And we don't talk about those things because we all don't use the same language. Safety and security, they're aligned and they are connected, but they're different. And they mean different things to different people. And so if we're thinking about how do we keep kids safe on the internet, you know, how do we do things like that? Right. How we do that truly is not give them more data. There's enough. How we do that is we start to share our stories. 
And if we can begin to be a culture where we already know part of the threats we're dealing with globally is because we are moving more tribally as a globe. We are not expanding. We are tightening. We are becoming tribal. That can be a good or a bad thing. There's a, that's a whole other show. We'll do another time. <laughs> um, but the reason I bring that up is because the crux of being a tribal community is story sharing and storytelling. And so how do we create anything to help people understand threats? That's what we do at the Threat Casting Lab. We don't just take this data, convene people, and say, let's talk about all these threats. We actually produce narratives. We produce those narratives so people can read them, so that they can understand, oh my gosh, this is how this could affect me or someone I care about. We need to tell the stories with the humans inside of them, and we just aren't doing that enough. And the place to really start is safety. Because people can hear that. They can't hear cybersecurity. What does that mean? That means my bank account. I can't get beyond that. But I can hear you when you start to say, let's have a frank conversation about safety in your life. And here's all the different things that are affecting you. That's different. So that's something that I care deeply about because I really feel the humans don't need more data. And they don't even, they don't need to be told what to do. They can make their own decisions, but they need guidance. And how do we choose anything we do? By our communities around us. When we're making big decisions, we often ask our loved ones, what do you think about this? What are your thoughts? What are your opinions? But we don't do that in the threat space. And it's because we wouldn't know how. So a mission of mine right now is how do we help the humans learn how to tell their stories better so that we can all share and that's that's our warning that's that's our first flag is you know and we already have mechanisms for that we'll say to somebody well you know i'm going to be honest with you i kind of have a red flag here that's the same thing that's what we're talking about we just don't do it enough because we're afraid we're afraid that if we speak up and say, uh, something doesn't feel right here, people's going to say, what's your evidence? Where's your data? Sometimes we don't have all the data, but there's enough data if you want to hunt around, just as you and I were talking about before we stepped in here. Of, mm-hmm. If you want to find something and you really are motivated to drill down, you can do your research and you can find it. What you can't find as easily is, what are my fellow humans who I respect and believe in what do they feel about this and how do I begin that conversation even how do I say hey I I can kind of see there's a disinformation problem in America right now what was your experience that's a new way to communicate with each other so that's why I'm really you know pushing this conversation around people understanding there is a need to talk about safety beyond the way we know it because this giant big next generation that's coming they care a whole lot about this topic we're just not talking about it correctly with them yet we'll get there (laughs) (laughs) well this has been really delightful and fun Um, we've been talking with cindy coon um, and in just in a moment we'll we'll ask you where people can find out more information but we've taken a we've taken a look into the future 
And we've uh, journeyed back into our present time and found that in all this world of crazy technology, that what really matters is our humanity, our feelings, and our stories, and the stories that we can share with each other. As I said, my guest today has been Cindy Kuhn. And Cindy, where can people find out more information about you? If you'd like to know more about the Threatcasting Lab, you can go to threatcastinglab.com. And on there are all our reports that are publicly available, as well as you can find our sci-fi prototypes, which is taking our reports and turning them into comic books and graphic novels, which also help the humans understand the content a whole lot better than reading a big multi-hundreds-page report. Um, And on that site, you will um, have an opportunity to dig down into some articles and some work being done around the body of knowledge of threat casting. It is a new field. Mm -hmm. And um, forecasting and foresight are not new, but threat casting is. And so that's the best place to go and start your journey. And then Laboratory Laboratory 5 is my company. So I am a freelance contract producer. Um, I work for government, military, higher ed. And... I'll say laboratory5.com is a bit of a, as my husband likes to put it, an, a, a site that's focused on the art of vagary. So you will not find um, deep dive on there. You'll find very kind of surface, here's what goes on. And that's really important, though, because yeah. um, we don't want anyone to think, well, this is what we do for you. Because every exercise in the threat space is uniquely different. So you can find out more about what we do vaguely. (laughs) (laughs) Well, sometimes it's a good place to start. Yes. (laughs) Well, thanks, Cindy, for being with us today. And um, and, uh, uh, if you hear this interview and would like to know more, please uh, uh, check out uh, more of our programming on Voice America, all of our channels. We're a 24-7 broadcast operation. My name has been Randall Libero, and thanks for listening to this interview. Take care. (laughs) 